So we're looking tonight at the limits of earthly wisdom in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 12 to 17, but a quick review of where we are so far in the chapter, because verse 12 actually represents an inward turn. So in the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, which we considered this morning, we had the pleasures that we enjoy, the bodily pleasures of life. Then we talked about the bold projects, the things that we do to build, to create, to our worldly endeavors. And then at the very end of that section, we talked about the barrenness of life without God. Well, those are the kind of uh, physical active life in the the first 11 verses. Now we have a, a turn inwardly and we consider the life inside us in verses 12 to 17 as it relates to the active life. So in the passage before us, I think that we see the limits of wisdom. That's the title of this message. And in verses uh, 12, 13, and the first sentence of verse 14, we'll see that wisdom can, in fact, be helpful in the second Sentence of verse 14 to verse 16, we'll see how a focus on wisdom for success in this life can bring disappointment. And then finally, in verse 17, I mean, just look at my hating life. uh, And and we'll see how uh, this disappointment can become very grievous indeed. So helpful wisdom, heartfelt regret and hating life. So first, helpful wisdom. Now, wisdom is helpful. That's what we see in these verses. But Solomon here raises a question, which is a, it's an age-old question. It's a question that you see paralleled in uh, Plato's Republic, where the question there is, uh, does justice pay? Is it, is it, is it worthwhile to, to be just? Here in Ecclesiastes, the question is, is it useful to be wise, uh, put more. So he says, verse 12, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And he says, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. So the, the question here is, what, what benefit is there to wisdom when in the role that you undertake in life, you're probably just going to do what you did before. He's a king, so naturally he thinks about kingship. What can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been already done. Well, kings do kingly things, right? So if you thought about what King Charles III, the current monarch of the United Kingdom, does... He basically does the same thing that Queen Elizabeth II did, right? And it would be bizarre. And how do I know this? Because it would make international headlines if it were otherwise, right? King Charles III refuses to go to the opening of Parliament. King Charles III goes windsurfing in Australia for two months. I mean, it would be a bizarre thing. Now, it's more of the same for pretty much everybody, right? I'm a professor, so I profess. 
If you're a plumber, you plumb. If that's what they say, I don't really actually know what they... I mean, they, they do plumbing, but I don't know plum plumb... The, is it plumber's plumb? Plumber's plumb? Cooks? Cook? We have a fascination with people in the tech industry, I think because we're beholden to the idea that they actually do something new, right? That they, but if you actually talk to somebody in the tech industry and you ask a specific person, what do you do? I was at a conference and there was somebody who was a software engineer for Apple. And I said, well, what do you do? And it, it sounded, I mean, forgive me, rather boring, right? It, uh, it was, he worked on, his team worked on a particular aspect of a security issue for a software update. But of course, you may think about my job and think, how boring. I remember when I was in graduate school, I came home and my wife, Catherine, said that she was feeling a little down because she'd done nothing all day. And I said, well, what did you do all day? And she said, I just read. What do you think I do all day? Right? I read. I read. I teach. I write. So most of us, we do the same kinds of things that have been done before. So what's the difference between wisdom and folly and madness if you're just following a script? If, you're, if you've got the protocol before you? Well, there is an answer in verse 13. Then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. So there's a clarity to life that wisdom brings. Sure, you may be able to find your keys stumbling in the darkness, groping, reaching for things. But if you turn on the light, you can see everything all at once. Verse 14, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. The wise person sees everything all at once. The foolish person may perhaps stumble on just one thing. This is an important point that we should consider. There is skill in memorization. There's something to be said for really learning things. Children, listen carefully. But as we age and grow we realize that not everything is rote, that not everything is a script. We should prepare to, at times, do things very differently as the occasion arises. Now, how do we do this? How do we do this? We apply general principles to a particular situation. And the man or the woman of wisdom is able to tease out the salient features of a situation and choose, select, or act on those things, ignoring other things. The the wise person is able to describe and to characterize a situation that makes the rest of us go, oh, if that's how everything fits together, then we must act in this way. My mother loves 
mystery novels. And she has a prodigious memory. And so I remember being at a bookstore. Children, bookstores are places where you used to go buy these things called books that are paper. It's like a stack of paper and you could hold it. Um, Whereas now you just go out and you look at, at the drawer step and it's a box or there are these little electronic devices that you read them on. But I remember being in the uh, bookstore with my mother and she loves mysteries. And so she went down, she went like this. And she went, oh, I've not read that one. She kept all Agatha Christie. She kept like the entire library in her mind and she could go, oh, I've, I've not read that one. Well, Agatha Christie has a Belgian detective, Hercule Poirot who exercises the little gray cells in order to solve the case. And what does Poirot do? He pieces together the puzzle of everything that we've learned and orchestrates everything as a single picture, which is the face of the person who committed the murder. And the way Poirot does it is he articulates what the motive could be, the method of the crime, and then, most marvelously, all of the little hints, maybe even the red herrings that made us suspect somebody else, he ties it all in a bow. So we can see clearly exactly what's going on. Now... That's just fiction. But sometimes in real life, people do this and it's absolutely marvelous. If you have been suffering an illness for a long time and a doctor or a nurse says, well, what you really need to do is be tested for that. And sure enough, you are tested for that. And that's what was wrong with you. We don't want to walk in darkness. We want to walk in light. We don't want to live a life of madness and folly. We want to live a life of wisdom. Now, how do we live a life of wisdom? Well, the Bible is very clear. Solomon himself is very clear. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You should seek and pursue the wisdom and instruction that is found in this book, the Word of God. Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How do we walk in wisdom That is so helpful. We walk in wisdom by learning wisdom, by becoming, having our minds structured by the word of God so that when we look out into life, we think the way the Lord does about the world, not the way that we think about the world. Yes, memorization of scripture is important. Yes, it is very important to study the word of God. As you do those things, though, something marvelous happens. You begin to have a biblical outlook. 
on how life should be structured. And that's enormously helpful. So that's the first point, helpful wisdom. But then in the second sentence of chapter, uh, sorry, the second sentence of verse 14 of chapter 2, Solomon begins to express heartfelt regret. So yes, the wise person has his eyes and his head, but the fool walks in darkness. That sounds good. And yet, the second sentence of verse 14, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. The same event happens to all of them. Well, what end happens to everyone? Well, spoiler alert, in verse 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. So the, the key of what's the ultimate end of this fallen world, it's death. But even before death, even before death, we recognize that sometimes the fools make decisions that turn out really well. Other times, the wise suffer indescribable harm. And it, it provokes Solomon to ask, with us all, verse 15, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? Why be wise when I could fail anyway? Why be wise when sometimes the foolish prosper? Well, and it, it gets worse. We, we die, verse 16, but also of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. There is no enduring remembrance. If the timeline is long enough, we will all be forgotten. Can you name the first and last name of all your grandparents? What about your great-grandparents? What about your great-great-grandparents? If you don't remember them, why would you think that even your own great-grandchildren would remember your name? Remember your name. Do you know the name Don Hudson? Does anybody know the name Don Hudson? Don Hudson... H-U-T-S-O-N, was a charter member of the College Football Hall of Fame and a charter member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He led the Green Bay Packers to three NFL championship wins, 1936, 39, and 44. He's the only pro football player that I could find who scored Four touchdowns in a single quarter. A single man scored four touchdowns in a single quarter on October 7th, 1945. Don Hudson, and we have never heard of him. You, uh, uh, one million, about one million American high school students play football. Tens of thousands of college football players in all the different leagues or whatever they're called. There's, I, I've, the internet's a marvelous thing. There are 32 NFL football teams. Some of you knew that for years. I learned it last week. 
And each has an active roster of no more than 53 players. So 32 teams, active roster of 53 players, but a million, one million high school football players. That means, I'm no statistician, but that means that if you pick up a football as a high school student to play on a field, then you have, it is more likely that you will be struck by lightning during your life than play professional football. It is a rare thing. So it's a great accomplishment. It's a great accomplishment to play football. It's an even greater accomplishment to still have, as Don Hudson does, the record for the most number of touchdowns in a single quarter. But guess what? You'll be forgotten. You'll be forgotten. And it's not just football. What about Jenny Lind? Jenny Lind was the, she was the Taylor Swift of the 19th century. She was, I think, a Swedish soprano. There is an unincorporated town in Arkansas named Jenny Lind. You can go there, but we don't know who she is. What about Chester Arthur? What was he, like a chef? He was the 21st president of the United States. You could be president of the United States and not be known by Americans. How many Africans do you think know who Chester Arthur is? Ten? A hundred? And he was president of the United States. So if you've ever wondered whether or not you will be remembered on earth, the answer is no. When I sit next to people on the plane, I love, you know, I say I'm a philosopher and sometimes languages are close to ours or, you know, or to Greek so that the people will know like philosophia or, you know, whatever. And, um, and I always like to say Plato, Socrates, you know, that's my best get. And a lot of times people may have heard of Socrates, may have heard of Plato. But then I ask about Aristotle who should be as well-known and also had the benefit of being right. And I get a blank stare. Aristotle. Hmm. Never heard of him. So, if you have ever wondered whether or not you'll be remembered, you won't be. If you've ever wondered whether or not life is fair whether the people who are skilled and talented and work hard will always, you know, triumph and the people who are lame and foolish and lazy will always fail, then you know the answer. Life is not fair in every instance. And Ecclesiastes 2, sober-mindedly, gives you that answer. In many ways, life's foundation is shaky and unstable. But this instability of life should make us long for and look to the rock that is our foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ. We must build our lives on him and the rock that he is and not the shaking sand. Sure, we will have tribulation in this life, as Jesus told his disciples in John 16. But take heart, for I have overcome 
the world. If you believe that, there is great comfort. But if you don't believe that, then don't try to lie to yourself and pretend that there is comfort to be found elsewhere because there's not. And also, if you refuse to believe the, world, the words of Jesus, then just wait. It gets worse. And we see this in verse 17 of chapter 2. Notice the downward trajectory here. There, yeah, there's some helpful wisdom, helpful wisdom, but then also some heartfelt regret. And then finally, verse 17, it's just hating life. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after wind. So if Solomon in all his splendor in this glorious palace, all of the many palaces and parks with fruit trees and irrigation and all these servants, and he builds the temple of the Lord, if Solomon could confess that life was grievous, I think it's actually kind of refreshing, right? If you've ever hated your life, you're in good company. You're in good company. Now, why was life under the sun so grievous to Solomon? I think it's the unpredictability of being wise. Sometimes the wise make it big. Sometimes the crazy make it big. Sometimes the fool has success, the madman, and the wise don't. And it's not just the USA. The world has been slouching into ruin for some time. Dow Persley's class this morning, he gave a little mini study to kick it off on the book of Job, and it was marvelous. And one of the points that Dow made that I think fits nicely with this passage is how Job's three friends, when they see his ruin, as compassionate as they are, and they sit with him in the ash heap for a week. Nevertheless, when they speak, they want to say that Job's life situation was brought upon Job because of something that Job did. And I find that very convicting. I think that all too often I want to explain how a a hard or difficult situation befell someone because I want to say that that will never happen to me because I'm different. And that is foolish and not wise. Sometimes people work hard and they flourish. Sometimes they have excellent talent and they excel. They create the music that, they, that we love. They hit the home run that is astonishing. They do create these inventions that really seem magical. They seem magical, right? There are little children, including my own, who walk near a speaker and tell it to play music. And it plays music. If I was a child and that had happened, I would have been really excited, but also a little bit scared, I think. But then there are also the other times where 
we've got to think about how there are people who are really talented, who never get the big break. They miss the opportunity that if they'd gotten it, they would have sailed on to tremendous success. And then conversely, there are people that have great wealth. They're self-made men and women. And they don't really seem to have enough intelligence to tie their shoes. And yet there they are in splendor. Or even worse, they're profoundly wicked. I don't know if you know this, but Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi, when he died, they froze all of the Libyan assets. And it was estimated, and I think that this is in the old pre-inflation dollars, they estimated that he was worth $200 billion. That is worth more than anybody in the world alive today. And you read about these things. You, you read about horrible dictators. There was a, uh, it was, uh, I think in the 70s, there, there was an African dictator that he spent either half or the entirety of the um, domestic gross product of his country on a single lavish like installation ceremony for himself. So his people are star- starving and yet he's living it up. And we are right to find this repugnant. But even closer to home, usually what provokes us to hate life is not some foreign dictator mistreating his people, but some way in which there is genuine and legitimate injustice that is done against us or the people that we love. If this is the case, then we need to have a heavenly perspective. When the Apostle Peter writes to suffering Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2, he points to the Lord Jesus, not in some kind of saccharine Sunday schoolish way, though not in our Sunday schools, I'm thinking about other places, where Jesus is just the glib answer. He says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, when he, that is Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Will you entrust yourself this evening to the one that judges justly? It may be that there are things that provoke you rightly, to righteous anger and look to Jesus. Did Jesus get a fair trial? No, it was a kangaroo court that sentenced him to a shameful execution. And Peter says, look to Jesus. And did Jesus hate life? No. He was not so enamored with his life, however, that he was unwilling to give up his life for you. In the very next verse, in the the next two verses, Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, 
you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Yes, life can be very difficult. And there are people who are wicked who prosper in ways that make us aghast. And yet the world has been falling to pieces for a long time now. And judgment day is coming. And it is a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if we had to pay for our sins ourselves, it would be a, a, a shocking thing because it would be a sentence in hell forever. And yet we have been rescued from that. And so even though we recognize the limits of our own earthly wisdom, let us rejoice in the limitlessness of God's undying love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that nothing takes you by surprise, even though, Lord, we confess that some things take us by surprise. We pray that you would make us eager, eager to serve you, knowing that in the fleetingness of life, we have the joy of eternal life that we can taste now and we will experience in the world to come. And it's in your strong and powerful name we pray. Amen.